right. Welcome back to the MVP Interactive Podcast. After a pretty lengthy hiatus, we have a very special guest in Tinas LaRue from you know, the CEO of Crowd IQ, formerly potentially known as FanCam or maybe co-CEO of FanCam. But uh, Tinas is the uh, CEO of FanCam, which for those of us that don't know, combines high-resolution 360-degree gigapixel imagery with custom branding and engagement features to become the ultimate crowd selfie. If you found yourself in a stadium over the last few years, chances are Tinas has uh, taken a photo of you and put you online and you're able to search where you sat and you know what the the look on your face was when uh, your your favorite team scored or, or lost. It was an awesome technology, and uh, we'll learn a little bit more on this podcast how that uh, parlayed into a new platform called Crowd IQ, which is a state of the art computer vision to provide actionable insights on the composition and behavior of crowds. All about analytics, a little bit of the fun on the front end, a little data on the back end. Sounds very familiar to the. Uh, uh, MVP experiential model as well. So, Tinas, how are you, buddy? It's been ages. It's been ages. I'm I'm good. I'm really thank you for the invite. It's great to to see see you and talk talk with you again. Um, I'm excited. Absolutely, and you know, neither of us have aged a bit since we met back in 2014. <laughs> in, fact, in fact, we're 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 it's like Benjamin Button over here. <laughs> That's right. I'm glad there ain't no, no no visuals associated with this podcast to prove the opposite. <laughs> yeah, that's intentional. Let's use that. That's intentional. Well, you know, okay. So taking back a little bit into the time machine here, I I recall meeting you at the uh, the famed seat conference back in 2014. I believe it was in Kansas City. Uh, you and your partner uh, James were were on site, and uh, you know we were both emerging companies, just getting our feet wet. Um, you know, in the experiential and in the sports market. And, and so we instantly hit it off personally and really saw the uh, value in each of our, you know, technologies and what we were looking to do collectively uh, in the sports tech market. And so why don't you talk to us a little bit more about, you know, essentially the inception of FanCam, where you guys started, uh, obviously you're overseas, and then, you know, dating us into, you know, pretty much today. Yeah, happy to. Um, as you can pick up from the accent, um, not not from around here. So um, I'm, I'm a South African, um, born and bred. And James and I studied um, engineering together. And we figured out ways to take really big pictures quickly. That's it. And so um, going to the technical detail of that, but essentially it, it allowed us to bring gigapixel photography into the live event space. And so gigapixel photography is simply, oh, they de initially develop it for the Mars rover. It's where you zoom into an area, take a picture, move a bit to the right, take another picture, do that a, a, a thousand times, and then stitch those together. Um, it, it was typically quite a long process. And James and I just figured out how to do it quickly. And so we took a few pictures at, at rugby games in South Africa and then jumped on a plane to the States. And, and suddenly everyone liked it. And then... And the, and then we didn't sleep for a few years. So um, <laughs> I caught, we, you and I, out up um, paths crossed about three years in that process. And we initially, we went like six continents within the first six months, um, finding partners to sell this in, in, in different markets. And then realized quickly that's not, that's not feasible. Um, we want to focus on one market and, and the US being the biggest. We chose that. We still did a few like UEFA Championship League finals and 
cricket in India and stuff like that. But the focus was here. And I think around 20, when we met, was around about the time when we took our sales responsibility and process in-house uh, and started building those relationships. Sure. And so that, that's the origin of it. Um, as you touched on the product, but it's, it's very simple. Um, technically, it's complex, but it's, we give fans the opportunity to prove they were at an event. That's it. And so they can zoom in, find themselves in the crowd and share that with social. And that people like pictures of themselves. So that just kept on working. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think, you know, just to your humility and um, who you are as a person, and you're understating the level of difficulty in technology advancement at that time, you know, 8, 10, <laughs> 11 years ago. So if, if just for the, the lay listener here, um, not involved too much heavily into the technology, but I mean, imagine, you know, being able to uh, stitch multiple cameras and camera angles and shots and sequences um, together to, to match 100,000 people in a, in a stadium. And this is prior to where, you know, virtual reality technology had landed or 360-degree cameras that the technology has brought forward. So at that time, you know, I'm sure it was quite the arduous process, even though you had called it, you know, you figured out a quick way to do it. It was, it was still fairly laborious, I'd imagine, yeah? It was, and, and specifically um, uh, when these, when you have this overlap and people start moving, um, as you can imagine, it's difficult taking just getting my family to stand still for a Christmas photo uh, or Thanksgiving <laughs> photo. If you've got seventy thousand people in there, you, you're not going to get them to sit still. And so, in those areas of overlap, that required a lot of manual work in terms of Photoshop. And so we we typically spend about eighty man hours on each image and had it live the next day. And then over time, we, we, we improved the process um, and, and our, the speed of capture, with, which takes those things away. And yeah, so it is technically complex, um, but I will say it's, it's, not, it's not really false humility. It's just um, if you com- the way it just happens, the, the way James and my brains combine, that that's the easy part of the business for us. What was, what was um, more challenging was um, productizing it and saying, right, what is this worth? And so that's why I was immediately when I met you, um, so interested in your world and um, experiential. Um, what is engagement? How do you do engagement? Right. Um, I mean, I had an intuitive understanding of it, but I had no um, background in, in um, marketing and sponsorship. And so understanding that part of the business and how to position it as a product, I found to be much more challenging than actually just um, kicking out nice pictures. Sure, sure. I mean, that's a, a, a pure lesson in entrepreneurship as well, right? Good ideas and uh, cool little widgets are, are a dime a dozen, if you will, but executing on those uh, ideas, the efforts, the products, and you know, productizing it, and then finding an addressable market to fill a need is certainly an undertaking that most people may not consider when you know that light bulb moment happens. But uh, yeah, we certainly can appreciate that challenge as well. And so that actually leads me to my next point in terms of you know taking us back ten years, right? Um, fan experience in general uh, meant a different thing. You know, in our minds, I think it meant the same thing in where it is today and, you know, what you were going to do for consumer engagement and, you know, how you were going to leverage sponsorship and brand dollars in sports to to create a memorable experience for the fan. 
But I remember the early days where, you know, ownership were on the news or on a soapbox talking about fan experience because of a new Jumbotron, right? And like, and that was, or, or maybe a new concession method. Right. <laughs> so breaking into sports, um, you know, talk to us about some of the maybe early challenges or early adoption issues that you, you, you were faced with, you know, selling this through, trying to productize it, and then, you know, you seeing sports as like the perfect opportunity for the product, but, you know, were you ahead of the market, you know, from a business perspective, or what was some of your feedback? Yeah, we, we've, we've typically been ahead of the market, um, and um, it's... Um, it's not a badge of honor. People like saying, oh, we're cutting edge and ahead. But if you've, if you've really been ahead for a long time, it, it comes with a lot of frustration because then the gap between where you know things will be going and what the reality is, that, that's, just, that's just frustrating. You'll, you'll pitch 10 years ago, I'll be explaining to folks stuff that's obvious today. Oh, immersive content is going to be more engaging. Um, fan-centric content these are things that should not be difficult to to explain but we were going up against um alternative um spins of saying oh but we just got a great piece of new signage and in, 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 <laughs> up in the corner and we're going to spend a million on that and it's going to be awesome but how is your cool photo going to help us sell more beer or whatever so, right. <laughs> uh, and, and so that was yes we, we've always been been ahead but there's also a bit of being naive and not coming at it from a with any background in sports business or any background in photography for that matter sure. or and so just as a fan saying i like this i want i want a picture and so being really i'm stubborn about that and then um i think what's that part helped but what helped most is that the product worked and it kept kept on working Right. And so that comes down to people often get caught up in the technical stuff and what, what's new. And I always go back to this thing. It's very simple. If you give a fan a picture of him or herself at an event and you can add context to that so they can see where they sat, they can show where they sat, they want to see it. It's, it's, it's not our headsets can change everything it's a very simple premise right and so initially we had a lot of folks saying oh this is a gimmick and i bet my house on it because i knew that that fundamental psychological driver is not going to change and i mean we're busy doing to give you a comparison one of our biggest first deals was was the u2 360 tour and so this is 10 11 years ago sure we're currently busy with justin bieber's um tour and the, the metrics look exactly the same 10 years later, Amazing. different demographic, Amazing. different, it's, yeah. it, it's both based on those fundamentals. So long answer to your question, but um, yes, articulating it with a bit of common sense, finding people that want to, to look at things that make sense. Um, so, 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 so um, finding the right clients and then also just it working. It just, it just turnkey and take a picture of the fans. They'll come streaming in and there's, there's no arguing against that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I really appreciate the first part of your your answer there in terms of the naivety of trying to go to market with this. And I, you're 100% accurate. 
And, you know, I think as business owners or, or believers in your own product and what you're looking to, that is by far the most important validation that you need to kind of get out and know and take on the challenge of hearing all the no's or trying to break through. And, and to be fair to the sports properties, you know, they're seeing it from a much different lens as well, right? They're not used to investing you know, real marketing dollars or maybe even sponsorship inventory to things that um, mm. at that time that were so somewhat nebulous in terms of what a non-tangible asset inside a stadium <laughs> would be. And, and so we, we experienced that um, too, too often, far too often, where we got a lot of cool, cool, cool eye rolls, like, so who pays for this, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. and, you know, here, here's our value as a property, and here's how we sell sponsorship dollars and so on and so forth. So, but yeah, I mean, if you try to research and really understand the sports business and understand each property and ownership's values and, and sort of revenue models, you would have never gotten out of, you know, out of your own way with that. So having the sheer determination and, and naivete to just kind of go for it is um, extremely value and, you know, something that I, you know, resonates with me personally as well, because that's the very similar approach that I, that we took. I think just to add to that, it, it's a, um, I'm, as you know, I'm relatively analytical, so I'm, I'm always problem solving. And, and quite quickly in the process, I, a bit of luck, um, a bit of chance, I realized that sponsors are, are, are more incentivized to think about engagement than teams are. Teams are thinking, this is, this is not true everywhere. This sure. is not true yep. of all time. But at that point, I, I just summarized to myself, like, oh, the team's job is to get the sponsor. And so the team really cares about spending money on fan engagement if it helps them keep the sponsor. Sure. And so we, uh, quite early on, we started working sponsor direct and, and we had most of our success there. And over time, the teams realized, oh, okay, so, so these guys with the weird accents are selling to our clients um, and we'd rather work with them than go sell it to, to, to our clients. And, uh, <laughs> right. time, we just we didn't want to break it, but we didn't know any better. It's just, right, it's just right. oh, you guys have money, yeah. we'll go there. So that that helped as well. It, it kickstart the whole process. Sure. If Coca-Cola sure. comes in as they did and say, we're doing 30 college football games, and the next year suddenly the colleges are working with you. Um, so. Yeah, that's interesting because we were the exact opposite. It was the total chicken and egg thing, right? By on both of like we had no idea, right? And so we were selling to the teams, and we learned the sports business and the sports model. It took us a f you know pretty much a, a full year to understand why why are we getting so many no's with this, and um, you know. But then we we sort of cracked the code, so to speak. Where hey, you know, if, you know the 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 psychology with the sponsorship had shifted teams were getting far more privy with like, yes, this is a leverageable asset that we can kind of present yeah. to um, the sponsor. But had we gone to the brand or the sponsor first, I think that would have cut down our, you know, launch pad of success a little bit in time. <laughs> but, you know, we had to learn, right? And so, um, you know, I do have to ask, keeping it in the sports realm, um, you had mentioned the uh, U2 tour. Was there any particular team or stadium that gave you the first opportunity to work with here in the U.S.? Um, actually, it's, it's always it's always a person. Um, and, and a person in our ca case was uh, um, Pat Coyle, who's become a good friend. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. I, 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 um, I literally, <laughs> so you can imagine, back to being naive and, and, <laughs> and stubborn, is I just sat in South Africa saying, oh, this will work in the States. At that point, I've been to the States once on holiday. I didn't know anyone. Oh, wow. So it's a, um, so I, I did a search and found this 
um, Coil Media um, Digital uh, Sponsorship Conference in Atlanta. Booked it, emailed Pat. Pat met with us beforehand, and he got it um, and made a few introductions. And so the first one was was the Colts, um, and we did their wild card game for free. And the next week they paid us. Um, and then the week after that, we did that, our first Daytona 500. We've done seven since. That blew up. And then we just a roll on effect. Um, and, and so sure. the, the, it's as simple as, in our world, fan cams sell fan cams. The more we do, the more we sell. Sure. And so that's always been true. I mean, recently we, we did it. We had a, wasn't a call. We were on a call with the MLS team. And um, we just we just signed them, shot at FC, uh, and we've been kicking out some cool stuff for them. And so a week later, we get a call from another MLS team. We're on the call. We're saying, "Oh, do you guys see our work with with John FC?" And said, "No, no, my boss was at my boss was at a Justin Bieber concert." <laughs> so, we didn't know you guys were. So that's exactly the thing. The more we do um, in in different different verticals, um, the more people get to see it. Yeah. As soon yeah. as they use it, they want it. Absolutely. Yeah. And a very good point when it, it just takes one, one believer, right? Sorry, sorry to use that word after you said <laughs> Justin Bieber and that, that was a pun not intended for sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, we had a similar experience and I always tell the story that I, um, I forest gumped my way into the NBA league office early on. And I, I, to this day, I, I honestly cannot remember how, why, um, Mark Tatum, who is now the executive global <laughs> or the executive commissioner of the league. So he's probably, you know, heir apparent to Adam Silver, you know, if, if the career path still follows. But at that time, he was the global director of marketing at the NBA. And, you know, I went in there, I pitched a couple of ideas and, you know, what we were looking to do. And, you know, he was gracious. He was generous. He, he didn't know what the hell I was talking about. That's for sure. But he said, let I, I feel like you could talk to our events team and it's going to connect with them. Talk to them. So he, he did broker that. And, their events team, very similar. They're like, well, you know, we're not going to pay you, but we're going to, you know, we'll give you tickets to all the all-star festivities and, you know, do the proof of concept with your device. And at that time, we were doing digital bobblehead face filters, and this was pre-Snapchat. Snapchat, so yeah. this was like, who are these guys, <laughs> right? And so, um, and that's all it took. You know, I so I, I always say that we have two start dates, right? Like one when I filled out the paperwork, and then when we what, and then two is when we actually became a, a business when uh, we were at a jam session in, with the NBA, which does a fantastic job, by the way, with all of their marketing global marketing events and. Uh, we were able to walk home with a contract uh, as a result of that. But, yeah. but look, I think there's also um, a cautionary tale in there for, for maybe the other um, people in, in the startup space being wanting to be vendors in, in sports is that you've got to do a few things for free. Um, but there's definitely a time where you've got to be able to, and the product needs to be worth it by itself. So I'm, I've said no to doing a Super Bowl um, for free oh, yeah. because we, yeah. we did it once. And then it's like, right, it, it worked. Sorry. And so people said you're crazy, but it's, you, you've got to, you've no, got to draw the line at some point. Absolutely. And, but, and I think as new businesses grow and, you know, no matter how, what your length of time of business is, you have to have respect and value your, your own property and your own product. And we see that all the time. And, you know, when we branch out into different verticals, well, yeah, let's, can you do this for free? It's absolutely not. Like we have a good resume, strong resume. We can give rec, you know, like um, references and, um, you know, we're far too long in, in sort of, yeah. And then the other thing is also, if you, if you keep on doing that, you don't really get a market test of your product. 
Mm-hmm. So, so I've seen quite a few startups um, having, they build a portfolio and you, as I said, did that, still do that. Um, and you, but you need to be selective um, because at some point you need to test if someone's willing to pay for it. Um, because especially if you've got something that's cool, people want cool. And so we've got a, a relatively sexy product. People, they always take the meetings. Um, we always get the nods. But at some point you need to draw that line and say, okay, is this worth something to you? Because mm-hmm. if it's not, then I should be stop drinking my own Kool Aid and, and and stop betting my house on it. Sure. So I think it's sure. it's a it's a very it's a it's a you get that moment early on in the business, and you go through those phases, and you've got to be strategic and saying um, we're going to Europe now. How do you how do you quote? How important is that? But giving just getting the getting the brand name is not always as important as as you think. Rather get a a lesser brand, see value in your product. Absolutely. No. And listen, we, I, I think that's extremely valuable because the intention of this podcast as a whole is not only to um, learn about new technology and what's in the experiential market, but really have an entrepreneurial slant to it and, and learn um, different strategies. And everyone has a background and an opinion in terms of where their start began and, you know, some of the life lessons as a business owner um, evolved. And so, no, we, we, you're on, you're on brand. I'll put it good, that way good, for good. sure. Um, so slanting back to a little bit of the technology side, I remember a conversation you and I had years ago um, about virtual reality. And, you know, at that time, you know, when you're a company like ours where, you know, our product is really the stack of IP and the knowledge base of being able to create these immersive experiences. You know, we have pretty cut and dry straight products, but also, you know, the value is the entire MVP experience from creative design, development, and execution, right? And so in the experiential world, uh, as you know, with marketers, um, you know, they chase the shiny light, whatever's hot and trending, you know, uh, what brands are looking to do, what technology is doing, and you know, because that's their job is to really keep pace with the overall consumer market. And uh, so a company like ours that were also a little early in terms of bringing this type of technology into um, live experiences, you know, there was a lot of pressure at one point to say, hey, you know, do we rethink what we do and who what we are and become just a virtual reality company? And at that time, uh, because we've done some 360 um content captures and you know we we built some before it was really considered augmented reality you know or xr technologies you know we gave a hard look and then you know i called you and i said you know let's let's talk about this market i don't know if you remember this conversation but um it was it was a real eye-opener and i give you a lot of credit for like having me think about it in a more broad way where i think we use this analogy of you know, remember VCRs in the 80s, right? And, you know, there was Panasonic, Mitsubishi, v, v, uh, RCA, you know, you just name the manufacturers, right? And at that time in the, in the virtual reality world, there were so many startups manufacturing hardware and so many, <laughs> so many um, unicorns being built and raised in Silicon Valley about the new widget on the headset. And, you know, Oculus was certainly emerging and building, but then there were, you know, every type of tech company was building their own rig or their own camera. And, you know, the conversation that, uh, that you and I had was like, you know what, the content ultimately 
is the most important thing. I don't care what, how comfortable the headset is or if your camera's round, square, rectangle, and that's where the VCR analogy came through. And it was a literal race to the bottom when it came to hardware. I'll, I'll take it a step further. I think the content is also just shorthand. For, it's the story that's most important. People connect to it. And I think we, with all the shiny objects, as you mentioned, it, it's, it, it gets confusing. Um, you see a lot of analogy, a lot of similarities now with, with, with crypto and, and, and blockchain stuff, where what, what's essentially happening, why this is in our day-to-day -day narrative is because a lot of money in the VC space is being bet on that. And sure. there's a bit of relate there because one of those guys are going to pop out and make billions. They're going to be a unicorn. It's the same happened in VR. Anyone that had VR in their name or their mission um, <laughs> got money. And because they have money, they've got sales um, people. And now the teams, now VR is the thing. Sure. But amongst all that noise, um, it, it, it becomes difficult to look at why, what is the value of VR? Because people... There are some fundamental things in terms of our psychology, why we're involved with sport and entertainment that's not changing. And if, if technology can help you um, accelerate, um, lower the barriers of entry, increase the experience, all that, it's, it's great. Then there's, it's, it's worth money. But technology for technology's sake, innovation for innovation's sake, I mean, we've, we've, seen, we've seen this story <laughs> so many times. It's just a, it's a waste of, it's a waste of time to me. I need, there, there are other models where serial entrepreneurs that were in VR that are now in crypto and good for them. It's, it's, I like to build something. I like to see um, well, how does it actually help the existing product. And the existing product in sport is a story. Um, it's, it's, it's a narrative that fans can, can um, dial into that can give them a sense of belonging, a sense of identity. And so if a VR headset can put you right in the middle and that enhances that, you can make a sure bet it's going to be part of sport. Mm -hmm. If it's just going to be a cool gimmick, then you can sure bet it's going to be cool for a year or two and it's going to go, go away. Sure. And so I think that's, I'm babbling a bit, but I think I, I still have those same conversations and trying to distinguish what's, what's tech for the sake of tech and what is something that's really enhancing the product. But for that, you need to know what the product of sport is. And I don't right. think many people do. Yeah. And, you know, again, that's a testament to really staying the course as, you know, your core values as a business and an entrepreneur and, and making sure that, you know, you don't get distracted by, you know, what the market is chasing at that time. And I, and I think back, you know, I think the lesson for us is, you know, we've been able to keep pace and, and, you know, maybe stack some IP on past technologies into emerging ones and new ones. And, and so that's the value. But if we did a full hard pivot on any of these technologies that came and gone over the last 10 years, you know, we, we, you know, we wouldn't be here today. Right. And so that's exactly your value, James, is that, um, you need people in the, and I think when I mean, we haven't spoken in a while, but I'll take a guess that you've been successful because of who you are. It's, it's a, it's a, what you're, you're selling to an extent is trust. People can come to you and say, tell me what's the best solution here. And you can, you exactly. can say, well, augmented reality is hot now. So it's gonna, um, it's gonna, if you do this, people are going to look at it and next year, you're not going to sell that to them. You're going to sell something else to that's them. Right. And you're going to, yeah. and yeah. so I think that's a really, because sports teams are under pressure. The business model does not allow them to pay 
the people well sure. um they can't have big teams and i think that's where, where folks like yourself can come in and say i can really help you because i've spent time think i've thought about vr i've thought about Auckland. this is how you use it mm -hmm. don't get distracted by the shiny stuff and so that, that makes sense to me yeah absolutely so trending towards that path a little bit let's talk about you know big buzzwords in technology and i can see how one of them you may be sort of accidentally approached to towards to sort of enter into i don't want to say metaverse but in in your in your world 360 capture and the big technology right now to help influence metaverse capabilities is volumetric capture right mm -hmm. in essence 360 degrees live render full 3d uh capabilities have you has where's your headspace regarding that? And I, I, I could take a guess, but I'd, I'd be interested. To no, see. no, I'll, yeah. I'll, it, it's not a focus for us. Um, not that it's it's a, um, but just because we've we've found a bigger <laughs> a bigger fish to fry. Um, it, it's a um, we can do all that. We've done. I, I really enjoy everyone changing their locker rooms into metaverse setups at the moment. We, we did that ten years ago. Um, it's glad I'm glad that it's adding value. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think it's tied onto the previous comments. I don't think it's it's changing the the, the, the fundamentals of why people want to buy jerseys. Right. Um, so it's cool, um, but we're we're in a different direction. I, and it was fun talking about the three hundred and sixty capture stuff. But I don't these days. I don't spend a lot of my time thinking about that. That's almost a. It's something we do, but but we've we're we're a data business now. We've right. used. Um, we realized about five years ago um, that, and this is why it was difficult to introduce me, there's FanCam and CrowdIQ, <laughs> right. and I'm, I'm founder and CEO of both. It is, it is two different companies. It's the same company, but we had, to we had to separate those things so we could have conversations with people about content, so everything we've spoken about now, and then we can have conversations with people about data. And so just quick intro on the data and that will answer your question of why I'm not focused on volumetric stuff at the moment, is we figured out, well, for the first five years, I, my job was looking at pictures of fans. And so being my brain working the way it does, I start picking up differences and similarities. And so that's interesting. I can, I can look at this crowd, I can predict their engagement because I can see there are more female fans in there or, um, bigger groups together or there are more people wearing the team's merch or stuff like that and so the thought was right could we automate that that data extraction um and the answer is yes if you have high enough resolution images you can train algorithms to count the number of home team jerseys versus away team jerseys um you just need enough pictures of high enough resolution and so we at that point we were sending photographers to to capture the tentpole events. But if you want to pivot to a data business, you want to capture every game. And so we started um, working on remote control capture. Um, so I started installing cameras in buildings. And the first one was, was at, at Madison Square Garden, um, where we started building this, this Crown IQ interface. And today we're in 15 venues um, with cameras automatically switching themselves on two hours before a game. And just scanning the whole venue and we deliver everything from demographics to um how did the how, how, how different sections fill up um because we can count the number of fans there to what are fans paying attention to so how many people looked up at the big screen when the 
Bud Light ad was 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 on sure. versus how many people looked up when the Verizon ad was on. And so we, we the Crown IQ part of the business is ingesting these high resolution images that we use to create the fan cam content, structuring it in a way that we can automatically um, extract data from. So that is uh, that's the part I'm passionate about today. That's that's where we we bet our future on. And so then once you've done that, you re you require to focus. And so I have to I enjoy the volumetric stuff. I know we can add value there. But we're very much focused on um, using our technology to gain a better understanding of crowds and helping teams use that data to, 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 to make more money. Yeah, yeah. And that's great. And that was actually my final transition into, you know, where you navigated into Crowd IQ. So thank you for, <laughs> for heading there. Well, sorry, and, 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 it's just, the, the context was just, I love them. I mean, I can get volumetric stuff I, I mean I look at some of the stuff I really get my hands oh, dirty. Sure, sure, no, sure. no I'm fo data <laughs> focusing and, and the reason for that is because almost also tying back to the conversation about shiny stuff we're in the crowd business you you and I sports industry we're in the crowd business it's mm -hmm. just the fact that we're these teams are able to attract crowds that's the reason we have businesses mm -hmm. and so for me understanding that crowd seems like something that's never going to go away absolutely and, and, and so that's that that's the, the the bit of gold we discovered in the field and just saying right this this is a thing i want to i want to own and that's going to be the sustainability right like we met referenced at the top of the podcast you know creating that fun experience on the front end that's great but if there is no sort of data behind that and a brand or a team cannot understand like how you get to an ROI, even though that we are in the experience business. And I can argue that, you know, that's a very difficult ROI to quantify in terms of experience, yeah. but it's, it's incredibly valuable. Um, I think, you know, you've mentioned these festivals. I was one of the original uh, Coachella attendees where it was just art and campfires and there was no brand awareness, but the experience had evolved to become so big, so massive. Of course, American Express and Coca-Cola and Budweiser, they're all going to have a presence there. And there's a reason um, because you can monetize as a business, have a, a tangible or uh, a uh, tangential technology that weaves into that experience that provides valuable insight into the consumer behavior. And of course, all the cool widgetry up on the front end, that's great. But if there's not that data piece, you're not going to sustain very long. And I love what you said there, because you're right. Um, quantifying experiential is difficult. Um, I, I like that. <laughs> like something that it's just I, I, I want to be busy with things that are difficult yeah. that, that are yeah. not challenging um and um i think that's part of the allure is saying this is this challenge i, I always said oh we don't know so well maybe we could know yeah. maybe we can use technology how can we use 360 high resolution um, technology to to gain this knowledge Yep. How can we use sensor technology? So that that's part of the challenge. Listen, um, you know, solving problems. It's um, yeah, you know, sometimes it gets exhausting, but it never gets old. It's it's always a new challenge, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tinas, this was, you know, we can go on and on and on. And, and I know that you're on holiday and, and vacationing with your lovely family. So thank you very much for taking the time and your personal time to, uh, to catch up here. Where can our listeners find you and what you're comfortable with disclosing to find you? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's probably safer to direct them to LinkedIn, um, where, where I um, don't 
don't shout at rugby referees and stuff like that as as on twitter so um tennis larue um it's relatively simple there aren't many many with that name so <laughs> t-i-n-u-s and larue is l-e-r-o-u-x and if you do a simple search on on linkedin the folks will they do a good job in allowing you to find me so absolutely well this was great thank you so much for your time and uh, until next time for the mvp podcast thanks for listening we'll see you next time <laughs>